we have been away for a time from Mark's blessed gospel, and I want you to turn back to it, if you will. Mark chapter 14. If you are visiting with us today, we have as a congregation been working our way systematically through the gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves all the way over in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. You follow along as I read. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he who was betraying him had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures." And they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Whenever you attempt to preach through a Bible book verse by verse, you come to certain portions of Scripture, especially in the narrative sections of the Gospels or the Book of Acts or even from the Old Testament narrative, and you try often to see the outline of a particular passage. And admittedly, sometimes it's very difficult to outline a narrative section of the Bible. Because often it is simply telling you what occurred in history. And yet even when something is told to us, not by way of a didactic epistle, but by way of a gospel narrative, there is much for us here. The title of this morning's message is The Arrest of Jesus, Sealed with a Judas Kiss. Over the last several messages that we've looked upon in the Gospel of Mark, we've learned and been taught a great deal about this person, Judas. And we find ourselves confronted with him again in this section. We also find ourselves again confronted with the person of Christ and what he's doing and saying. And we also find ourselves 
looking and watching the disciples and how they're responding to all of the things around them. And we find ourselves once again looking at the religious leaders of Jesus' day and what they're all about and how they're responding to the events encircling them. When you are confronted time after time in these paragraphs with what is going on, you want to be able to look behind the scenes and to see what is really there, not just the words on the page, but what is happening in the pathos of the human heart. And I see much here. I want to give you an outline that might be very different than what you might in fact come up with yourself or you might have read in the latest commentary on a passage like this. I think it's okay though because again in a narrative section, not dealing with an epistle that has a very clear and precise outline, often in fact outlining itself. The preacher doesn't really have to do that on his own. The text does your outlining for you. But in a narrative, you often have a bit of liberty where you can look at this passage, really discern what's going on, and then attempt to bring its truths to bear on the minds of your listeners. I want to do that this morning. And I want to do it in a way that I think will be greatly challenging to all of us. At least it is for me. I want to give you five actions, five actions, five things that different people or groups of people are doing in this paragraph. And I want you to see what is going on in the motives of their hearts. Now, if you've listened to me for any length of time here from the pulpit of the Bible Church of Little Rock, you know that I've said on a number of occasions that it is virtually impossible for one human being to know, at least completely know, what are the motives of other people's hearts. Sometimes we don't even know the motives of our own hearts. And so it might be a bit strange for you to hear me say, what the motives of the hearts of these individuals are, but I think we can do it mainly when we look at the actions of these individuals. Often, not always, but often the motives of a person's heart will become evident by the actions of their lives. It's not, of course, a 100% certainty. Only God knows that. But often you can discern the motives of an individual if you're to look at the actions of their lives. You, of course, just like me, have had an occasion, especially if you're married, to have actions in your life for which then your spouse would say, I believe I know what your motives are. And because they know us so well, they're almost always right. It's a difficult thing sometimes not to let your, moti your motives be known when people see your actions. It's entirely difficult to know the motives of a person 
if they don't see your behavior. But if you reveal to them out of the actions of your lives, which includes even the words that you speak, often your motives can become very clear. And that is what I think is going on right here in this portion of God's Word. I want to show you these five actions coming from either a person or groups of people and their actions. Action number one. Action number one. Let's call it treason. Treason. And we don't have to look any further than Judas himself to understand really all that we need to understand about the matter of treason. We find out about that in the first part of verse 43, and then in verse 44, and then rounding it out in verse 45. Notice the treason in the heart of Judas. Immediately, the text says, while he was still speaking, that is Christ, being in the garden of Gethsemane, you know that what links itself up with this particular paragraph is what goes before this paragraph. And what goes before is a section in which we saw very clearly that Jesus was asking the disciples to pray with him as he was thinking about going to the cross and going very, very clearly and very soon. And apparently, while he was having dialogue with, their, with his own disciples and with their own dialogue with each other about what Jesus was meaning by going to the cross, having not fully comprehended exactly what Jesus is referring to, right in the midst of this very discussion in the Garden of Gethsemane, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas enters the scene. You remember that Judas had left the scene right at the end of the upper room. He had left. Jesus had said to him, do what you're going to do, and what you're going to do, do quickly. And he does. You know that he has gone already to the religious leaders, and he says to them, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? And they gave him a certain amount of money, and they said, if you'll give us this Jesus, this rabble-rouser, then we'll give you this money and you'll have what you want and we'll have what we want. And so Judas aims to do that very thing. And apparently, while the words were still in Jesus' own mouth in the garden, Judas enters the picture once again. Judas, one of the twelve, as if he needs an identification. We know all about him. We know him very well. He came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Then in verse 44, the Bible says, Now he who was betraying him. And did you notice the idea there? It wasn't just, now he who was going to betray him, or he who had betrayed him, but in that continuous idea, now he who was continually thinking of and carrying out the act of betraying him, 
had given them, that is the religious leaders, a signal, a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard or under safety. After coming, verse 45, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. This idea in verse 45 of a kiss was emblematic at that time of someone going to royalty and either kissing them on the cheek or kissing them on the hand or maybe even both. We don't know exactly which it were here, but we do know this. It was a sign that Judas was giving the religious leaders not because he respected the person of Christ, but because that was the way he could identify who Jesus was in this mob of people so that the guard could immediately go and arrest him. And beloved, I can't think of a more hideous way of betraying the sinless Son of God. Betraying him with a kiss. How ultimately ironic it all is. Can you imagine having spent probably well into three years of time with the perfect Savior, the Son of God, the sinless one, the one whom you had seen perform miracles, healings, the one, no doubt, whom you saw healed the Gadarene demoniac, the one who terrorized all of the people who came by his way, and Jesus sent those multiple demons into the pigs and then sent them off the cliff, and then they turned around and this man was clothed and in his right mind. Only God could have done that. Only God could have performed that kind of miracle. And Judas had seen countless numbers of these. And Judas saw how Jesus responded to the people, how he taught them with warmth and sincerity and power and passion. He, like the other disciples, had seen all that they needed to see from the person of Christ. And of course, the other disciples responded, not always as they should, but at least there was a glimmer of hope. There was a vestige of faith and response, at least to some degree. They loved him. Even right now, they were wondering, what's going to happen to us and what's going to happen to Jesus? He keeps talking about going to a cross. He keeps talking about dying. We don't understand. And they're concerned, not just about themselves, but for him. But not Judas. And I suppose that's why we have come up with that colloquial phrase that says, a Judas kiss. It's insincere. It's ironic because in the midst of someone who you presume to be your friend turns out to be your greatest enemy. Shock of all shocks, isn't it? The person you assumed who was your greatest ally becomes your chief adversary. That's what I would call treason. And the ultimate treason, beloved, is the treason of this man Judas betraying Jesus Christ himself. 
Now, I've said to you before, and I think it bears repeating, before we're so hard on Judas, is it not true that before we came to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, there's a Judas in all of us? We betrayed Jesus Christ. Not just by the sin that we experienced in Adam, in the loins of Adam, like the Bible says, Romans 5, 12 and following, but the sin that we actually by our own choice make against the sinless Son of God. We've all made that choice. So before we're too hard on Judas, we need to be equally hard on ourselves. If Christ had not come into our life, if He had not saved us, if He had not called us with a holy calling, we would all be Judases from beginning to end. Oh, we might not be Judas with a capital J, but we'd be little Judases running around, always wanting our own desires, always wanting to pursue our own course of action, always wanting the money, always wanting the fame, the fortune, always wanting what we want, whatever it may be, and if it means we have to sell out Christ, we do it. I guess that's what makes the gospel that much sweeter. I guess that's why that passage in Romans that says that while we were yet sinners, Christ what? Died for us. Even while we were hating God, Jesus Christ was loving us. That's why He went to the cross. That's why He set His face like flint. That's why He was not going to be moved by anything until the Father's will was accomplished. And I guess that's what makes this treason of Judas that much more heinous. Because Jesus never did anything to deserve the selling out of this man. And I guess, as I've said to you before, when we've looked at this character study of Judas, that's why he's called the son of perdition. You know what that means? That means that God in eternity past made a judgment on this man, not because of anything he had yet done. He hadn't done anything yet. He had made a judgment that this man was going to be raised up for the very purpose of damning forever. He was going to be the son of damnation. You say, why? Because God wanted to show the magnitude of His grace for the people who also sold Him out. Us. And so God could show the greatness of His glory, the multitude of His glorious grace as over against the contrast of the greatest sinner. You see, if we didn't have the contrast of Judas and his selling out Christ, if we didn't have the great contrast of this wicked sinner, if we didn't have the contrast of the man who was born for the very purpose of selling out the Son of God and how we are so much like Him ourselves, we wouldn't know the greatness of God's grace. This is treason at its height. 
And beloved, this is us. This is who we are. This is the action of our life, and it shows the motive that we, that we are the people who deserve God's judgment, just like Judas. And yet God shows us, instead of His judgment, He shows us His grace. And the judgment that we deserve, instead, He puts on His own Son. For what we deserve because of our treason against God, James says to us in unmistakable language, those who are the friend of the world are at what with God? Enmity, enemies, vile, hostile. And what does God do? He takes it. He takes it. His kindness, His patience. And it's not that He just sweeps it under the rug. No, there's a payment that must be made. But the payment that is made is the transaction between the Father and the Son for which the Son takes the full fury of the wrath of God upon Him. He bears our judgment. Don't ever think of treason in the same way again. Don't ever think of Judas in the same way again. The treason that he epitomizes is with a small t the treason that we have put on Christ. Action number two. Hatred. Hatred. And you say, boy, this is coming off as negative. Well, this is the passage. And this is what's happening to the sinless Son of God as He's betrayed. Look at the hatred. We can characterize hatred by looking at the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders. Look at verse 43. Judas, one of the twelve, came up. Notice this. Amazing. Accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. I mean, this is, this is almost too much to, to conceive. These are supposed to be the religious elite. These are supposed to be the clerics. These are supposed to be the noble, the mighty, the godly, the virtuous, the righteous. And yet they come with swords and clubs. And look at verse 46. After Judas did what he did as a sign, they laid hands on him and seized him. There's only one explanation for this. There's only one way to read the actions of these men, and that's hatred. I've told you before that what's really going on here in their hearts and is borne out in other texts is the idea that what Jesus is doing as a master teacher, what He's doing as the Messiah presented to the people is taking away the money and the power and the prestige away from the religious elite and they will not tolerate that. They'll not put up with it. 
Jesus has a winsome way about him. He has a powerful way about him. He has a way that is compelling. And he has a way that's also stinging in his rebukes. And they have been on both sides. And when it's time to seize him because of the hatred of their hearts, they lay their hands on him and they seize him. This is, this is incredible. I mean, we almost say to ourselves, how can men who are supposed to be the representatives of God himself be so hateful? Well, we know about that, don't we? Because in our hearts, before we bowed the knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ, what was in our hearts? Hatred? Oh, we might not always say that it comes so clearly through our actions like it may have from these men, clubs and swords. I never took a club to Christ. I never took a sword. I never seized any of God's ambassadors. I never did any of that. But did not Jesus himself say that if you had a thought of hatred, it was as guilty as murder on the outside? Sure. We've all experienced that. It's a part, beloved, of our very nature. It's a, it's a part of the very fabric of our lives. Because whatever we want, whatever is standing in the way of what we desire to achieve, whether for us it's also a power or prestige or prominence or whatever it is, we will not let anything stand in our way until we achieve the very thing we set out to do. And if it means knocking off someone else, we may not always in our society do it because of external implications or punishment, but in our hearts we might very well have murdered someone. And if we have never come to Jesus, that hatred is still there. Oh, it may be shaped and formed by the external issues of life. We may seem as though sometimes we're even fairly high society. But since Jesus is all about looking at the issues of the heart, what's in our hearts? Thirdly, there's a third action that I see here. Let's call it with a two-word description. Dullness and cowardice. Dullness and cowardice. I, of course, am speaking about the disciples. Look at verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then notice verse 50. And they all left him and fled. That's not the crowd. That's not the people with the swords and the clubs. That's whom? The disciples. 
You say, well, how do you ascertain dullness and cowardice? Dullness. First of all, Jesus has very clearly told the disciples what is going to happen to him. And in another gospel account in Luke 22, the disciples even asked the question before this particular disciple does what he does, and they asked the question, should we draw our swords? In other words, Jesus, should we fight? Should we protect you? And what has Jesus just told them in the garden? Watch and pray. He didn't say fight. He didn't say to do that at all. He told them explicitly what he wanted them to do. And the very first thing they do when they're confronted by an angry mob is to ask the question, do we resort to physical violence? Is that your plan? Is that what we're supposed to do? You know, it goes right back to what they were doing in the garden in the first place. He said, watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. What did they do? Sleep. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is an opportunity for them to be awake. And it isn't to be so awake that you pull a sword out of its sheath and start flailing it around. It's to do exactly what Jesus has told you to do, and he hasn't said anything about preparing yourself for a physical battle. The disciples, in a word, are dull, spiritually dull, lethargic. And then, what about cowardice? Well, we certainly wouldn't say that at least one of these disciples is a coward. Because what does he do? Before the question can even be answered by Jesus Christ himself, none other than Peter, according to John 18, in fact, we might even look over there because it's a fascinating account, John chapter 18. Peter, only spoken of by name here in John chapter 18, verse 10, John 18:10, Simon Peter then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So even before Jesus has the opportunity to answer the question about whether we should draw our swords and start to do battle with this enemy against you, Simon Peter takes his sword immediately out and he swings it as hard as he can probably at the high priest. And it just so happened, quote-unquote, that the servant was in the way. I don't think there's any reason to believe that Peter walked up to the high priest, grabbed his earlobe, and started sawing it off. He was ready to die at that point, and he was ready to kill anybody in his path as well. In verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Isn't that what Jesus has been telling the disciples all along? I'm going to do this. It's the Father's will. It's His plan. We're not going to try to circumvent this. You say, well, where does the cowardice come in? Verse 50. Apparently, 
when the high priest servant, Malchus, his ear is probably laying on the ground, bleeding all over the place, Jesus, in an amazing effort to show these disciples and to show everyone around not only who he is, but that this is not the way, this is not the plan, probably either picks up the ear itself or just leaves the natural ear on the ground and takes his hand and cups it over the priest's, the side of his head, and that ear miraculously reappears, as though the event never happened. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm one of those soldiers, I'm saying to myself, should I be doing this? Whose side am I on? Whose side should I be on? I don't have weapons like that. I probably better put my sword or my club down. And apparently, in the melee, when everything now is a seizing of Jesus, the disciples, rather than being not just dull and apparently not following the plan that Jesus has given them all along, decide that when all of these things take place, they got to go and they flee. Now they all said in the upper room, it is not I, Lord. I'm not going to do this. Peter was so boisterous. I'll be prepared to die with you. And maybe for a split second, taking that sword in his own hand, he was. But when Jesus showed him under no uncertain terms that physical violence wasn't going to be a part of the Father's plan, at least not now, Peter says, I can't fight against this either. I'm out of here. Cowardice. Cowardice. And it's really amazing what Matthew talks about when he talks about this. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 51, And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword, that's Peter, of course, and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall what? Perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Say, how many is that? I don't know, but it's a lot. We don't know exactly, but a legion is a whole lot of people. Maybe 120, maybe more. Twelve legions of those immediately dispatched at the Father's will, immediately to do battle with those guys. Those guys wouldn't stand a chance. And I don't even believe in chance. It would be an amazing, an amazing thing to see. But that's not the Father's will. That's not the plan. The plan is for Jesus to miraculous, miraculously take that ear, put it back in place, and to rebuke Peter in the presence of the rest of the disciples and the whole crowd. The plan is for him to go away peaceably with these men, which would have been, I guess, to some of these, an incredible thing. How could this be happening? Why is he allowing himself to be arrested like this so easily? It's what I've been telling you, men. You're not listening to me. 
Peter, you need to learn this very, very simple but straightforward lesson. If you live the rest of your life by that sword, you, my friend, will die by that sword. You know what that is a reiteration, by the way? Capital punishment. That's right. This is an explicit statement by Jesus Christ himself all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. If a man sheds another man's blood, then by his blood will he be shed. And that was never abrogated. Never. Oh, there were occasions where Jesus, as the Son of God, said, I choose not at this particular point to do that with this individual, whoever that individual may have been. And there may have been some examples of that. But the, the status quo, as affirmed by Jesus right here, was this. Capital punishment is this. If you do battle by killing people, then you yourself have the right to be killed by others. Not individuals, not vigilantism, but by the government, by the very people who are arresting Jesus unjustly. If you are found out to have killed another person, then by all rights and by all, all legal authority, then you will have capital punishment on you. We had capital punishment throughout the entire country. Contrary to what people say, there would be less murder because there would be less murderers. That's exactly what Jesus is teaching. Peter put that away. You do that, you'll die by that. And so, having taken the physical issue of violence away from Peter's repertoire, Peter says, I'm gone. I'm out of here. That's cowardice. What should he have done? He should have trusted Jesus. He should have trusted what Jesus told him. He should have trusted that when Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised again, and I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee, I want you to go there. You know it's going to happen. I've given you this promise ahead of time. This is the opportunity for you to trust me, men. That's what Peter should have done. And Peter, as the leader, as the spokesman, should have looked at all of the other leaders, the apostles, the disciples, and said, men, we're going to trust Jesus. We're going to do what our Messiah has said. He's the Master. He's the Lord. We're going to respond to His message. We may not always understand it. We may not fully comprehend it. But that's His will, and He's following the Father's will, and I will not bring physical violence into this because Jesus has said no. And if He brings physical violence into it, then Jesus says they have the right to kill you. You know what capital punishment is? It's the law against anarchy. That's what it is. It's the law that says anarchy will not rule the world. Because if you don't have capital punishment, then you have people killing other people willy-nilly, arbitrarily, capriciously. And Jesus says you'll die by that same sword, or should. There's a fourth person that's here in this text, and it's Jesus himself. We've talked a lot about him. Don't need to say a great deal, but I do need to give you his actions. And here they are. Rebuke and submission. Rebuke and submission. What about the rebuke? Well, he's rebuked Peter, certainly. We've seen that. But he also rebukes the very religious leaders. Notice what he says in Mark 14, 48. And Jesus said to them, 
that is the religious leaders, the ones who come with the crowd, the swords, the clubs, they're from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. In other words, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they're, they're not the ones with the clubs and swords in their hands. They have the crowd doing that for them. Even buttressed on the outside by the Roman cohort, just watching whatever's going on. This is a Jewish issue. And he said to them, the religious leaders, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? In other words, are you arresting me for the sin of robbing? You know that's not true. It's a rhetorical question. You're arresting me as a, as a penny-ante robber? Every day, verse 49, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. There's irony all over that. But this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures. That's submission. He rebukes them, and then he says, rebuke aside, I understand this, this is exactly what God is allowing. This is His plan. I'm submitting myself to His will and His purpose. And you can immediately see how His understanding of God's will completely transcends the disciples. They want to fight back. They want to disregard what He said. He has this tremendous mob right in front of him. They've seized him. They have their hands on him. He knows he can send down 12 legions of angels at that very moment. He even says in one of the other gospel accounts, when they say, are you the person we're looking for? And he says, I am. You know what it says? It says they all fall to the ground. Why? Because that name is reserved for Jehovah. I am He. And no Jew would say such a thing unless they were making a claim to divinity. And that's exactly what He's doing. And they fall to the ground. And then they rise back up and say, we'll not have it. And the reason why they sort of bolster their own ability to rise up and seize Him is because he's not fighting them. And so they think they have the upper hand. And he says, yes, it may seem that way now, but it's only because the Scripture is to be fulfilled in this very way. You say, what Scripture? Too many that we could look at this morning, but at least one, Isaiah 53, you're very familiar with it. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant, and that's what is going on here. In verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men. That's, that's the disciples. That's all of us. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Can you imagine this? The Son of God in the Garden of Gethsemane being held onto by robbers, by thieves, by clubs and swords, by religious leaders. He was despised and we did not esteem him. I'll say so. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Can you see the disciples in that? Can you see us? Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. 
He was numbered with the transgressors. He willingly, for the joy set before him, said, I'll go. It's unjust, undeserved, could have called down a legion of angels, could have responded to the entire scene by changing the very face of history. But he says, no, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. That's a man under submission. And then lastly, a very fascinating thing. Let's call this fifth action on the part of one a fringe follower. A fringe follower. This is one of the most interesting and enigmatic portions in all of Mark's gospel, in fact, probably in all of the New Testament. Notice what it says in verse 51. A young man was following him, that is Christ, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. And that just sort of comes out like a bolt of lightning. What in tarnation is this? Some of your Bibles even have a a bold number there designating what they believe is a new paragraph. And boy, wouldn't that be an interesting paragraph in which to preach, verses 51 and 52. I think it goes with this whole context because this is the garden scene and someone apparently is following in the dark, someone on the fringe, someone in the corners, someone in the blackness, and they come and they see this angry mob. They see the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They see Jesus himself. They see the disciples. They see Peter take out a sword and lop off the ear of the high priest servant Malchus. They see Jesus healing that ear at that very precise moment. They hear this dialogue and they're standing in the shadows. And then when Jesus is taken away, this young man, it says, who was following with only a linen sheet draped over him, probably absolutely naked underneath or at least wearing some sort of undergarment that you would never show to the watching world. And apparently, someone seizes him too, believing him to be a part of this band of disciples. Who is it? Who's this fringe follower? You know, it's interesting. This is nowhere else stated in the entire Bible. No other gospel account. No other reference to it. Nothing in the book of Acts. Nothing at all. You know what that leads most commentators to believe, and I am one of them? It's John Mark. It's Mark himself. You say, why would he put that in there? Because it was so vivid in his mind. I was that young man. I was the man in the garden. I was in the upper room. In fact, we link it to John Mark because in Acts 12, 12, it says that his mother owned a house apparently so large and many believe that that was the very house for which the upper room itself occurred. And so Mark must have been there and he must have been asleep being a young man. And when it was midnight or after and when the disciples left, there was a commotion that was caused. And he, being naked, maybe in the time and season of year for which they would not have been sleeping with clothes because it was too hot, he took nothing but a linen cloth that he had wrapped around him and he went in the darkness on the fringes. 
waiting to see what was going to happen with all of these people, not really being called or perceived as a follower himself, just being a young man. And he goes to this place, and he's seized himself. And he too, because he's on the fringe, flees. They try to catch him. And all they're able to seize is the linen sheet itself. And verse 52 says he escapes naked. We don't know where he went. Presumably he hightailed it back home as soon as possible. In the darkness. They didn't have street lights there. He might have even been able to do that with hardly anybody seeing noticing, probably went a back way. Don't you think this would have been so vivid in the mind of John Mark if it really was him? Can't you see where he might very well put that under the inspiration of Scripture right into this section of his own gospel? I was there. I saw the arrest of Jesus himself. Now you say, do you know that for a fact? No. And I don't say it to play it up. It's a bona fide view. It might not be Mark. But if it was, don't you know that when he became a true disciple of Jesus Christ, he might have said to himself, why was I on the fringe? Why was I on the fringe? Why was I so fearful of my own life? that I ran as fast as I could? Why didn't I stay there? And why wasn't I incarcerated like my Lord? Very interesting. Even if we don't know who it was, we do know this. When the Scripture says that everything that Jesus was going to do would be fulfilled and all of the events themselves would be fulfilled to the very letter, Amos 2.16. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Listen to this prophecy. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. Could this be an allusion to the very one unnamed in this text who might have been a brave warrior in some different scenario, but in this time, and in this day, he flees naked. Why? Probably because he does not yet have faith. And that's what happens to every fringe follower of the church. They're sitting here. It may not always be that they're in the back. It may not always be that they're in the shadows. But when you look at their life and when you look at the commitment and when you look at who they are and when you look at what they're doing, they may have some sort of attachment to Christianity. They may have some sort of allegiance or so it appears to the Savior. But in the end, when the heat is up, when the endurance needs to be given, they flee, clothed or not. Are you a fringe follower? Are you the one who deserves a rebuke from Jesus Christ? Dull, cowardly, hating, treason? Well, there's a lot here, isn't there? You look just beneath the narrative. 
There's so much here to apply. And I think we could sum it up as we end by saying this, Lord, if I'm in that place, if I have just been described in my heart of hearts, Lord, deliver me. Bring me Christ. Let me be willing to die for Him. Our Father, we do want to be ready to die for Christ. But that means that we have to know Him. That means that we have to follow Him, not just on the fringes, not with treason and hatred in our hearts, not, not because we're in the shadows, but because we have declared full public allegiance to Him. Just like our brother who stood in our midst just an hour ago and said, this is my sin and this is God's grace. A public testimony. This is who I was. This is what God has made me to be. Oh, Father, I pray that these actions on the part of these, if they were to reveal ourselves, we would fall upon our knees and cry out for your mercy. Humbly bow our lives to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I pray that anyone here who's a fringe follower with sin in their heart would confess and forsake it, fleeing not away, but to Christ. May each of us on this pilgrim way share that message with others. And may they see in us a boldness, not a dullness, for our Savior. In His name, amen.